Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We have uh, seen, the, the Canadian government has announced that by 2026, one-fifth of all passenger cars, SUVs, and trucks sold in this country will need to run on electricity. Those are the new regulations that are being proposed in this country. By 2030, the number will be 60%. By 2035, every single passenger vehicle sold in Canada will have to be electric. So, you know, a little over a decade from now, we are looking at... 100% electric vehicle sales in Canada. It's an idea that some people really like, and I can understand why, but I have a lot of questions about whether we are remotely ready for something like this, or even remotely ready. I want to bring in Tim Burroughs. He is a member of the management team of the Electrical Vehicle, Vehicle, Electric Vehicle Society. Uh, joins us now. Tim, thanks for doing this today. Hey, Scott. Glad to be here. Thanks for asking. Well, listen, as I say, I think a lot of people on the face of it, on the idea, they like the idea of an electric vehicle, electric vehicle. They like the idea of the environmental benefits and of not paying for gas and all those things. But let's go through a few of these things because, I I mean, today as I was getting ready to talk to you, I was reading a bunch of things and a number of places all point to the same four or five issues that don't seem to be resolved, at least not to the satisfaction of a lot of these writers. So let's go through a few of these. The number one thing, or one of the, maybe tied for number one, Tim, is if I drive right now along any of the highways and I pull into one of those service stations off the side of the road where I can fill up, I can fill up my gas tank in five minutes and then I move out of the way and the next person can come in and they're done and they're done. We don't have nearly enough charging stations across this country to, if we suddenly see massive increases in the number of electric cars that are going to be sitting there for a much longer time charging, we don't have nearly enough of those, do we, right now? Uh, We have plenty of them at the moment, but need more. And we will need more as the number of EVs scale up in uh, in the fleet. But uh, one of the things that people often forget, and, and sometimes the writers miss it too, is that these cars are generally being charged at home 90 or 95 percent of the time. It's only on those long road trips that you need to be thinking about charging, as we say, in the wild. Um, so yes, we need more chargers than we have today. It isn't a panic situation. And not all parts of the country are, are um, created equal. There are areas where there's a bit of a desert of these chargers and they're, they're desperately needed. But by and large, you know, it's not as bad as some make it out to be. But I'm just thinking of the, okay, so uh, I haven't counted, I haven't done a study on this, but if I were to stop at one of those on-route stations and count the number of people who fill their tank in an hour, and let's say at each one there was 100 people who filled their tank in an hour, just a wild guess, uh, that would mean at each of those stations, potentially, would we not need 100 charging stations and it would take at least an hour for a lot of them, so maybe more at every one of these? Well, once again, Scott, you're, you're missing the point. I think that, that uh, people are going to be charging their cars at home, and rarely, rarely do they need to go to those stations. If you had a scenario with, you know, five chargers and 100 cars wanting to charge, sure, you, you'd have a wait. But that's not the reality today. No, it, it, it absolutely is not the reality today, but I don't think that we also have near the number of electric cars on the road that we will, if this goes through in the next 20 or 30 years, we'll have exponentially more. So we, we would need exponentially more chargers, correct? 
As the cars scale up, yes, we will definitely need a lot more chargers, guaranteed. But the other thing that's happening, if you're talking about a time scale like that, is that these cars are um, being changed. The chemistries and the batteries are improving. Charging power at these stations is increasing. And the charge times are getting shorter. So as if you're going to look at, you know, ahead that far in time, you have to take all those things into account. Charging will happen much more quickly and even less often as the range in these cars gets uh, longer and longer. You just gave the perfect segue because I, probably item 1A on the concerns is obviously the batteries for these. And the number one thing is that there are certain metals that are required to make these batteries at this point. Many of those places where the metals are found uh, is in China. And so we need to be, do, are we not putting ourselves, because we're not prepared in the way that we don't have access to this, we don't have a way yet, it doesn't seem, to cut China out of the mix. Are we not putting ourselves in, 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 in effort, in an effort to help our environment, we're putting ourselves at the mercy of China, because if they cut us off, we can't produce these. Well, as a matter of fact, you raise a really good point that here in Canada, we're actually kind of blessed with, with the uh, necessary materials and, and minerals to uh, be able to mine and make our own batteries right here. It's a, it's a huge growth and employment opportunity in Canada as EVs ramp up. And uh, people are uh, taking note and uh, beginning the preparations to be able to get those materials right here at home and create great jobs for Canadians. Did I not read something, though, in the last couple of weeks that a number of the mines that were mining these metals were making deals with China, though? I, I know I read that recently. Uh, there, there may be uh, situations like that. I'm not totally aware of, of those negotiations, if, if they exist. I did also understand that the Canadian government was taking efforts to kind of protect some of these resources from, from uh, foreign investment and keeping it, you know, in-house, so to speak. So I'm sure that it, it's, a, it's a, such a great opportunity uh, for jobs in Canada that um, it's, it's being looked at by some pretty smart people. And, and uh, I think the, the road ahead looks pretty good on that front. Uh, reading uh, your story, I mean, you're a guy who's been a, a, an aficionado, let's use that word, I don't know if it's a fair one, but of, of electric cars, you've driven them for a long time now. What about, there, there are concerns about, especially in a country like Canada, where you have these, like well, well, what we're talking about tomorrow, with this massive freeze coming in and everything. Have you ever had any issues with the car misbehaving because the temperatures, the conditions make the batteries go bonkers? Well, actually, it's kind of the opposite of that. It's, uh, I can tell you after I think I've had seven or eight winters now driving uh, fully electric cars, and I'd rather be in an electric car in a snowstorm than, than a gas vehicle. Why? And uh, Well, first of all, the, the, one of the things that, um, uh, that is a reality, if you have to slow down on the road, stop and go traffic, you can go for a long time on a, a battery electric car. Yes, you have heat for the cabin, and that takes some energy, but uh, what really takes energy from your battery in an electric car is moving it down the road. So if you're not moving very fast because of the weather conditions, your battery is not being exhausted, and you've got, you've got an amazing range. It's also great if you have to head out in this kind of weather. You've got instant heat. You don't even have to wait for you know, the engine to warm up. Uh, it's instant heat, and away you go. And because of these cars are kind of digital in their design, the uh, traction control is stupendous. I mean, really, really excellent traction control. They perform brilliantly in the snow. 
We only have a, a brief time here left, but the, the, the one other one that comes up a lot with this is electric vehicles to this point have not been inexpensive. And they, uh, I mean, I expect that as production ramps up, perhaps the price goes down because supply goes up. But if you also have people needing to buy new cars, because we've seen what secondhand, the secondhand car market in the last few years with COVID and everything else has been brutal. Are people going to be able to afford these? Uh, yes, they absolutely are. Uh, you're, you're correct in saying right now we're going through a really tough patch, and it's a new technology that's ramping up like all new tech. It starts off on the expensive side but gets cheaper. By the way, it's not expensive if you if you buy a car, electric car today and keep it for a while. The total cost of ownership, because as you mentioned at the intro, the, the cost of gasoline is so high and the price of electricity to, to fuel a vehicle is so low. And then you take in the maintenance uh, savings on EVs, no oil changes, um, you know, no spark plugs, none of that stuff. So you're, if you keep it for, you know, a few years and drive it, you're actually going to be ahead financially, even today. But they will come down in price, and they'll come in, uh, down in price, in, in my opinion, uh, to be less than a, a comparable gas or, or diesel vehicle. wish we could keep talking. It's a, it's a fascinating topic. I'm sure we will talk again about this because it's not going away uh, anytime soon. Tim Burroughs with the Electric Vehicle Society of Canada. Really appreciate your time today. Thanks for doing this. Anytime, Scott. Thank you for talking with me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let us go to our good friend, Bill Briou. He is a terrific writer on pop culture on TV. Briou TV is where you can find him online. Uh, always love having him on here. Uh, Bill, thanks for doing this today. Merry Christmas. Oh, well, Merry Christmas to you, Scott. All right, so let me give you a list here. I'm going to give you the top 15. This is done by Esquire magazine. They listed 100, the top 100 Christmas movies of all time. I'm just going to give you the top 15. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, 1964. Charlie Brown Christmas, uh, I don't know what year, but around that same time. Uh, Elf, 2003. The Apartment, 1960. The Nightmare Before Christmas, 1993. A Christmas Carol, 1951. Muppets Christmas Carol, 1992. Bad Santa, 2003. Miracle on 34th Street, 1947. Scrooge, 1988. Home Alone, 1990. White Christmas, 1954. A Christmas Story, 1983. Christmas Vacation, 1989. And It's a Wonderful Life, 1946. Uh, There are a lot of movies in there that sort of bunch together. Every few years, one of them came along. But over the past 20 years, none. What has happened to the art of making the great Christmas movie, Bill? That's a great question. I think it's funny. If you look at it, um, they seem to coalesce around one or two years, like 1946, seven saw a bunch of them. You know, there's a, it's a wonderful life, of course, but uh, also the Bishop's wife, um, you know, there's, there's several right around that, that same year. Um, And then he jumps to like 83 with a Christmas story or the Christmas vacation. Um, and I'm not sure what it is. I think there's nostalgia for a, a, a kinder, simpler time. And the films that were made in that era just work out that way for the better. Yeah, I, I mean, I, that, that may well be, and you're right, that they do seem to have some, they are spread out, but they do seem to come, there's a few in bunches, like Christmas Vacation and uh, Home Alone were one year after each other. I mean, two of the ones that everybody watches now, I don't, I didn't go back before we started because I never thought of it. I, I I don't know if something happened in 1988 or 89 that made us want to have more Christmas movies. 
But I, I mean, I wonder if there's political correctness or I wonder if it's that they don't think there's interest or if there's not ideas or I don't know what. I just, it, it seems weird. I have a theory with the ones that were made in 47 and I think uh, Miracle on 34th Street might have been the same year. There's a great, some great Barbara Stanwyck films. Um, and it's just the war ended. That know, would make sense. Yep. And then people were just, you know, so relieved and, and ready for uh, a story. But if, if you look at some of those films, um, and, and It's a Wonderful Life is a great example, very dark films, you know, like the, the guy wants to commit suicide. Yeah. Basically, it's a film about a guy who wants to commit suicide. Uh, and so, um, you know, people had been through a war. They'd seen the worst of uh, humanity, and they'd survived it. And so they were ready to embrace a story like that in that year. And I just think that's what resonates with us today is just that spirit of Christmas that sort of prevails despite how dark the world can be. Uh, I, I was looking at what some of the ones are that that would be maybe in the mix for right now, uh, more recent ones. None, I don't think, are, um, are classics. But, I mean, like Better Watch Out was one of them that was on a list somewhere. And uh, what was the other one here? Um Hold on a second. I'm just scrolling down to this one. Um, uh, Violent Night. There was one. Like it, it does. It does seem <laughs> like we also go through these things where suddenly all, there is a counter. Is it countercultural? Is that the right word? There's a um, yeah, no. There's a reaction. Sure. I mean, Bad Santa. I like. It's a funny film. It's profane. It's so wrong. But uh, it, it's you know I, I'll watch that one again. But you know a lot of them. I have to uh, be honest. Scott, for Christmas movies, for me, it's got to be black and white. I want to see Christmas in Connecticut. Who doesn't want to see Barbara Stanwyck this time of year? You know, she's just uh, tremendous, such a great actress. Her and Fred McMurray are in another one. TCM is showing these all now. Um, I think they've got a couple tonight, even it happened on Fifth Avenue and The Man Who Came to Dinner. Um and and uh, those are the ones I prefer. I even would rather see Holiday Inn with Bing Crosby and uh, Fred Astaire than White Christmas with Danny Kaye and and Bing Crosby in, in the fifties. Are that we one are we too cynical? Really for me. Are, so are those they, ones that you mention, and they uh, you're right, they're not all smiles and chuckles. They, these are some know. of these are post war, absolutely, but they do have the warm, fuzzy ending. Are we too cynical for a warm, fuzzy ending that a Christmas movie seems to require, at least if we're looking at the ones people consider classics, they do. Are we too cynical for that now? It, it's kind of all over the place. You know, just, some of these films are pretty strange. The Bishop's Wife is basically about an angel who's hitting on the wife of a bishop. <laughs> like, you know, when they wrote this, did they think about it? But, you know, it's, it's Cary Grant, so we accept it. Because he's so damn charming, he can get away with it. Um, I love the one now they're showing a lot with uh, Robert Mitchum and uh, Jennifer Lee. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, that I can't remember the name of it, but basically he's um, sort of a, a wayward guy. He doesn't have a job, and he's sort of adopted by this this woman who has a young son, but she's engaged to another guy. And Mitchum is just so gruff and you know, but 
boy, you really like him in this film. It's a great performance. Okay, now I, I can hear some of the people who are listening right now who are shouting at the radio and shouting at you and I. I can hear them, and yes, I understand there are these things called Hallmark movies which are out there which may be filling the void. But let me ask you this. I'm going to give you two options because the Globe and Mail had a piece this week with the headline, like it or not, Hallmark movies are an art form, talking about how, you know what, they are maybe not everyone's taste, but boy, they're, they're pretty fantastic. Meanwhile, Salon Magazine online, Hallmark movies are fascist propaganda. <laughs> <laughs> are Hallmark movies the best thing out there, the worst thing out there, or something in between? You know, there's, there's something for everyone, right? And Hallmark definitely, um, you know, fills the bill. Um you know, I, I think, um, you know, my partner Sandra here, her mother has the great saying. Her mother's 90, and she says, with the Hallmark movies, they kiss, and then it's over. And that's that's the whole formula. Uh, so you can kind of see it coming. Um, but, but, you know, there's people who love that and can't get enough of it, and that's that's all good. Hallmark, you talk about the formula. I've joked with my daughter about this, and I know that we're not the only ones, but yes, the formula. There is always a successful career woman living in New York who's probably a high-powered lawyer who has to return to her hometown right at Christmas time to help with something, and she goes into the little quaint local bookstore where she meets the rugged, handsome Christmas tree farm owner whose place is going to be taken over by developers, and then the woman gets snowed in when she's trying to fly back to New York and they fall in love and then, yes, they kiss. But it's the same, it's the same story every sure. time. And it works. You're right. Usually the guy is like a lumberjack or yes, something. Yep. He just happens to get snowed into her uh, store and then <laughs> away they go. There's one this year with Yannick Besson, uh baking all the way. That uh, I think it was a Lifetime, not a Hallmark, but the same thing. And it's they combine the two things, so baking and Christmas, and, you know, that's irresistible, right? So there's, there's a lot of people who love that stuff. You know, if we could do crossover stuff, like we could do like a Hot Ones Christmas from, the, you know, the streaming show or Survivor Christmas maybe, you know, do one like that. I mean, I, we could come up with a million if you wanted to from just, you know, successful other shows that could do Christmas and, and, and incorporate that one into a Hallmark, I guess. There, sh- there should be a Will Smith and a Chris Rock Christmas movie where they, you know, <laughs> meet and make up. And they slap each other, and then it's over. But you know, for, for me, Scott, I, it's something to do with my age too. I grew up and saw the original Charlie Brown, uh, Rudolph, and the Grinch animated shows. They were made in '64, '65, and '66 with Canadian voice actors. All those great voices in the Rudolph one, uh, Paul, you know, Paul Gross and, and Larry Mann, and all these guys who were. A lot of them radio guys, right? And uh, tremendous talents. Uh, that Grinch one, you know, you've got Charles Schultz directing it, Boris Karloff's voice. There was just such a convergence of talent that made those things really, really work. Um, same with all the great music on the Charlie Brown one. Uh, Vince Gardaldi? Gardaldi? My goodness, can't say his name. But anyway, they're, 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 those three for me are the hallmark, and that's the, the head-scratcher is... Here we are, 60 years later almost, and you'd think that there would have been animated holiday specials that would have been perennials since then, but there really haven't been. Yeah, and and as much as 
I don't know if the right word is schmaltz. I, I don't. I, mean, I don't know if that's it. I mean, you could look at Charlie Brown, and you know, I mean, t- today, first of all, the Charlie Brown Christmas today, you would probably never get the Christmas story told, the Christian Christmas story right. told on it. That would be, you know, it's just Santa and presents. I mean, it, it would never even be made today. But well, I, it was. It, it almost didn't get made then. It was only because Charles Schultz insisted on it. You know, he said, if, if I don't do it, who will? And, uh, but yeah, even then it was kind of, but the worst is that the, the, the message from those ones was Christmas didn't come from a store. And that was even more offensive to networks and advertisers in the mid sixties as it would be today. Yeah. I, I, as I say, I go back to the word cynical. I don't know if it's a fair word, but it just, it seems like there was a, an innocent, well, clearly there was an innocence, but there was also a sweetness to them. And I, I just think we're a little rougher around the edges now in our humor. I don't know that that works as well now that we could make that kind of thing. And, and, and maybe when you start bringing in more timely humor, the classic side of it goes away because the humor doesn't last. And you look at old comedies from way, way, way back once upon a time, not just Christmas, and oftentimes the humor doesn't translate because we're living in a different time. Well, let me tell you my favorite all-time Christmas special. It was made 20 years ago. It was on CBC, and it was Dave Foley from the Kids in the Hall, right. and it was called The True Meaning of Christmas Specials. It was only shown once. Had an all-star cast: Jason Priestley, uh, Jan Arden's on it, uh, even Elvis Stoiko. But it had uh, Mike Myers, uh, a couple of the guys from uh, SCTV, Dave Thomas as Bob Hope. It's brilliant. Look for it on YouTube. You'll find a clip of the scene where Bing Crosby and David Bowie are singing. Is Joe Flaherty is Bing Crosby with giant ears, uh, and Foley is is uh, Bowie. It's brilliant and hilarious hilarious, but they didn't clear the music uh, for repeated viewing, so it's only ever aired once. But it's just what you're saying. The humor was much more cynical, it was ironic, um, and it was funny as hell. But no, we don't get to see it anymore, which I think is a real shame. Mm. Uh, That would be the second best one after the Star Wars Christmas special from (laughs) Once Upon a Time. Maybe the weirdest thing. Um, Second weirdest, because you mentioned Bing Crosby and David Bowie. That might be among the weirdest duets ever put together for that song. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Uh, But it's also uh, that the two of them who sing it uh, in... in, um, Oh, the parody, those guys, the music, it's just too bad they didn't get the rights. And oh, by the way, that movie I was trying to think of earlier with Robert Mitchum and Janet Lee is called Holiday Affair. Okay. It's not as well known as some of the others, but Turner Classic Movies uh, always shows at this time of year, and it's a really interesting film. We only have a few minutes. I, I did want to ask you about something entirely different. So let me just change course. We're going to cleanse our palate here for one second, because I read this story today. YouTube is now, and again, this has nothing to do with Christmas, but it just, it blew me away. YouTube is now going to be spending $2 billion, with a B, $2 billion a year to secure the rights to the NFL Sunday ticket franchise. So they are going to pay $2 billion a year to stream, this, I guess, the Sunday night game online. And I, I mean, when you start getting into money like this for streaming, Bill, I have got to believe that we are getting closer and closer to possibly the end of live sports on television, that streaming becomes the future of all sports. Is that possible? 
Well, we've had this for a year or two now already. You know, like there's been NFL games uh, on, you know, and even the Blue Jays, Major League Baseball, on Friday nights, Apple TV Plus was had a, a deal where they were showing uh, back-to-back uh, games uh, all season. And uh, so, you know, all the sports is, are tilting that way, and it's really down to who has the most money. It's shocking, really, that NBC is going to let Sunday night football slip away because that was a huge deal for them. But then you know, there's talk of NBC handing back the 10 p.m. hour. You know, like the networks are are basically just keeping the lights on right now, right? And so it doesn't surprise me that the other ones are stepping in, except we've kind of passed this point with the streaming networks where they've hit the wall like Netflix. Now we've got ad-supported streamers that is just basically like has ads on the stuff. It's basically TV. So... But Bill, I'm why a I didn't surprised they're spending two billion at YouTube? Yeah. Why I didn't expect this is that for a long time now, the one thing we've always said is, look, people will PVR a sitcom, people will PVR a drama, or whatever else. The one thing that people generally don't watch on rerun is a sporting event. Sporting events have traditionally been the one thing that's watched live and that so the networks can rely on an audience. So you can sell ads for that and rely that that audience is there. That's why I'm surprised that anybody would let themselves be outbid for this because if all of a sudden sports begins moving in great quantities to streaming and off the networks, what is the future of television? It's a, it's a hard question to answer right now. I, I don't think, you know, NBC, CBS, uh, ABC are, are going to be around forever or maybe even in 10 years. But, uh, you know, people will just stream on networks that are less expensive as well as pay extra to see things like NFL games. Uh, if that's just a ticket that people, they, like, look at the Super Bowl, 100 million viewers. It's the biggest audience on television. There's are, there are hit shows on ABC and NBC that are drawing 4 million viewers all across the United States. That's it. So really, it's sports that people will pay for, and doesn't matter where it lands, people will pay to see it. Yeah, I think uh, you wrote in the last uh, couple of weeks, I know you wrote about the death of Kirstie Alley, and, I mean, she was on Cheers, obviously, and I can't remember the exact number, but I think the last episode of Cheers was 90 million Americans watched it, something like that. Like, it was an extraordinary number, and now, as you say, you're talking about a hit show getting 4 million. I mean, it's 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 it just, it seems to me that I would have thought that the networks would have gone to the wall. This is live sports where you can keep an audience there and then move them to something else. That would have been the one thing they would not have given up. But if, they, if they're giving up the Sunday night game, honestly, it, it can't be unfathomable that in a few years, could we possibly see a Super Bowl streamed rather than on television? Why not? Yeah, I, I think it's possible, although the problem there is uh, if 100 million people are streaming something, that's going to crash the system. Like, I don't know if the infrastructure is there to actually handle a Super Bowl audience. That might, that might be the only, it's a technical hurdle. But, you know, the NHL deal's up in four years, I think. You know, Rogers has had that $5.2 billion deal. They've had all this time waiting for the Leafs to finally win the Stanley Cup. Yeah. Um, what will happen when that deal ends? You know, is, is anybody going to pay, uh, you know, $10 billion this time? Um, or is it going to maybe be something that we're going to have to subscribe to? 
Well, it's really interesting because I go back to my point. I mean, I, I would understand if Roger said, forget this, because we've made this huge investment. We've had lockouts. We've had COVID. We've had Canadian yeah. teams not doing well. Like everything that could have happened bad to Rogers after making this deal has happened. I mean, it, it, n- some of it not at all of their fault. And so I could understand if they said, we're not doing $5 billion again. But Bill, if they don't, and if it was to go to another network entirely or streaming, what are people watching on Sportsnet all winter long when they don't have hockey? Guys playing cards. I, I was going to say know. poker again or billiards. Yeah. No, I mean, even the World Cup, you know, all these things, the World Junior Hockey Championships, they're big, big deals and lots and lots of money. But companies, you know, Bell and uh, Chorus are not spending like they used to in those areas because. They have their own um, streaming services to look after and manage as well now, and that's really where the action is. So it's going to change for sure, Scott. I, I mean, you know, I, I, I know deals have a certain life to them, so they'll be on networks for a while, but I, I do, yeah, it won't shock me if um, just about everything but the Super Bowl is something you got to have to stream. That is Bill Briou. He is a fantastic TV and pop culture writer. Uh, you can read his stuff at Briou, B-R-I-O-U-X dot TV. Uh, make a point of doing that because there is great stuff on there. Bill, we always appreciate you taking the time. Have a Merry Christmas. Thanks for, uh, for doing this. Merry Christmas to you too, Scott. Thanks for having me on. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.